We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of Big Blue Banter, the Giants podcast here with myself, my co-host Nick Turchin. Today we're going to break down a rapid reaction to the Jacksonville Jaguars-Giants regular season week one game where the Giants dropped the game by a score of 20-15 to 15 in a game where, honestly, when you look at it, and we will break it down, the Giants won the time possession battle, they won the total yards battle, so at the very least, you can't say they got blown out in this game by a team that was literally one quarter away from making the Super Bowl last year. But they did lose the game. They made key mistakes. We'll get to those. They lost the turnover battle, which is a hard way to win. And in the end, they dropped the game and will start 0-1 in the regular season with a massive game coming up against the Dallas Cowboys. I don't want to call it a must-win game, but it basically is one. Nick, how you doing today? Good, a little cold, a little wet with the weather, but uh, good to get some real game tape to check out and not much sleep in the last uh, few hours. It was a massive drop-off in temperature, actually. <laughs> For me and Nick are both stationed uh, different parts of the East Coast. I actually liked it because I didn't have to use my air conditioner last night, and I hate sleeping with that thing on because I wake up with a sore throat sometimes. Right. Um, besides that, and especially never good before a podcast. So I'm happy, but you know what? Some people don't like the cold weather as it turns, so... But we've been in such a, like, hot streak here that I feel like the humidity, it's good to have it drop. But anyway, let's talk Giants football. That's what the people are here for. And, again, very tough loss for the Giants in week one, a game that I think they really could have won. They had several plays that could have gone a different way, and they would have won that game. Um, Now, of course, the Jaguars lost Leonard Fournette to a hamstring injury early in the game. That changed things a little bit. But I do believe the Giants' defensive dominance in the second half, and we will touch on this later, uh, in the podcast, was more to do with the defensive adjustments made at halftime by defensive coordinator James Betcher. And that's something Janoris Jenkins actually touched on a little bit in his postgame presser. But we'll start with a topic that has enraged Giants fans from New Jersey to Texas to wherever the hell people are watching Giants football. I even had somebody from Norway go off on him. <laughs> and you could just see the trending topic from quarter one through the end of the game on Twitter. And that's Eric Flowers, Giants starting right tackle. His first game ever starting at the right tackle position. He was greeted by having to match up against Calais Campbell, arguably, in my opinion, the toughest matchup he's going to have to have all season or anyone is going to have to have all season at that right tackle position, depending on where they go there. So I think Flowers, I, I know I wrote about this a little bit on Twitter, and I'm going to get your your thoughts on this, Nick, as well. Um, I do want to take a look on Wednesday when the All-22 comes out and just specifically watch him on every snap to see what I see there. But just from my first go-through in the game and from my first look at what went down, I think Flowers played a massive role in this loss, just personally speaking. And we'll get to your thoughts on this. 
uh, in a second, Nick. Um, so Flowers graded out among the worst right tackles, according to Pro Football Focus, in pass blocking uh, in this game. A little bit better as a run blocker, actually graded out a little bit above average across the NFL as a run blocker. But as a pass blocker, he was in the bottom 10 from Pro Football Focus. And I'm with them because you look at that first drive for the offense when they're trying to set the tone. And Flowers takes back-to-back penalties, a five-yard completion that would have got the Giants ahead of the sticks into second and five. And really a big reason to me why this offense only put up 15 points was because they were behind the sticks in those third and long situations far too often. So there, takes away a second and five. Then a couple plays later, and that, that was the play he tripped Calais Campbell after he just completely burned him off the snap. A couple plays later, another penalty by Flowers. Negates a 40-yard completion down the field from Eli Manning to Evan Ingram, basically derailing the entire first series. Later in the first half, gives up a sack. I think the Giants actually fought out of that third and long when Eli uh, had a design rollout and hit Shepard, a play that I'm definitely going to feature later this week um, on Twitter. I'm going to do a breakdown of that and a few others, I think, from Eli, because we'll, we'll definitely touch on Eli. Don't worry on this podcast. So I'm sure me and Nick probably have a little bit different opinions there. But anyway, Flowers comes back, and then – Later in the game, obviously, to me, the key mistake by Flowers was the tipped ball interception. A lot of people are blaming Eli Manning for this. I've rewatched this play a dozen times. I can't understand how any quarter – I mean, a quarterback can take a sack there. So Eli could have just folded and taken a sack. But, you know, when you're forced to step up immediately into the pocket and completely break structure and completely get off balance, it really makes things difficult when you're not a scrambling quarterback. And Eli Manning – or when you're not a mobile, very mobile quarterback. And Eli Manning is not – a very mobile quarterback. And Eli Manning is not a quarterback who likes to play off schedule. So that ball, that play ends up with Manning trying to get the ball out. It gets tipped at the line of scrimmage, popped into the air. Jaguars return it for a touchdown. Their only points of the second half in a game that ended by a score of five, you know, a difference of five points and could have been four if the Giants get the extra point or three if they make that two-point conversion. So I thought Flowers was the number one GOAT in this game. Nick, did you see it any differently? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, on the offensive line, definitely a target uh, by Jacksonville. I just don't know in a lot of these plays, I don't think it's as bad as the vitriol will have it sound that's out there on Twitter and on the media and across the media, across the board of the media. You know, you go through the four plays that you mentioned, the first play, very, very first part of the, part of the game, he totally gets smoked on an angle set, as you, as you, uh, as you mentioned. Sorry, it was actually a vertical set. And that's his biggest issue is the vertical set where he's going backwards. And Calais Campbell times it perfectly and <clears throat> switches to an inside swim move, uh, inside swim move to a power rush and just totally smokes him. And he sticks his feet out to basically trip the guy as he goes by. And what you kind of have to wonder is, like, he's an offensive line. He's supposed to be striking at that point with his, up with his upper half. And the only, his instinct to stop a guy going by him is with his feet. And so there are issues here. It's not to deny that there aren't issues, and, and there's many ways to help them. Um, but one of the things, though, you look at the second play, which I just thought was kind of interesting when you really break it down on tape, and most guys may, may not want to hear this, um, but Eli makes a bad read. The play goes out of structure because Eli makes a bad read. If he stays, if he makes the correct read and throws to the man side of this, um, which is on the right side where Evan Ingram is running an in-cutting in route, Ingram's going to take the ball on the nine-yard line, probably gain like 15 yards. Instead, he tries, he reads the zone side to the three side, the, the, the trip side of the formation, and he has to then bail because that's in the teeth of the cover two. And as he's bailing out of structure, which he didn't really have to jump right away, he bails out of structure, and that's where the hold happens. And so... You see stuff like that where it's not to blame either player, but it's to say that hey, there's there's a share of the blame here within the team set, within the team set within the quarterback, saying that you know that he did he misread that play, and so you see a lot of those types of mistakes all throughout this game. Whether you're looking at drops, whether you're looking at um, you know uh, you know all different types of plays, but just specifically with with Flowers, yeah, there's there's issues in his vertical set. It's issues that teams are exploiting greatly. Uh, on that play where Eli threw it into the hands of basically Omame's defender when the speed rush came on the outside. You know, uh, Flowers is distracted by the basically the will linebacker who is taking the running back in man coverage and takes a couple steps forward, and that switches his head at, in the middle of a vertical set that makes him move his head, and he cannot recover at all from that little minimal head movement to a speed rush on the outside. It's just, it's an issue that he has that they're going to have to figure out to figure out a way to get past it. I'm not really sure how, but I guess my point of saying this is it's, it's, 
I do place the blame across the board here on the offensive line. A lot of guys had a lot of bad snaps for sure. I'm I'm fine placing the the blame across the board, Nick. But where I struggle is to just when you come back to things he said. Some of these issues with Eric Flowers have been issues since his first snap in the NFL, and have been issues since his game tape at Miami that people talked about. And they're just not going away. They're just not improving. There's just no sign that they're going to improve. Like you said, his vertical set, he just has issues with his technique, his ability to bend on the edge. Like There's just things he doesn't do at the NFL level. And doesn't, they're just not quality offensive tackle snaps. That they're just, it's as simple as that. And I know I took a lot of heat on Twitter when people misinterpreted a, a tweet I made after the game that basically said, listen, People act like there's some magic spell at the offensive tackle position in the NFL. No one realizes right now. I, if you ask me what's the shallowest position in the NFL, it's offensive tackle. Some people tell you quarterback, and they don't think there's enough good quarterbacks around the NFL, and that might be number two or three for me. But as far as number one for me, it's the offensive tackle position. And the Giants could not possibly stand to upgrade at both spots, which is what they needed to do, and really upgrade at three spots, the reserve swing tackle as well, in one offseason. It just wasn't going to happen. They yeah. need to get Nate Solder, and that's exactly what they did. And I'm still a fan of that move based on, like, what I've told – what we talked about before, Nick, and what, you know, I've, I, we've privately talked about and sometimes on the podcast. It's a supply and demand issue. If you're overpaying for offensive tackle, to me, that's not really overpaying in general because it's such an important position and it's so damn hard to find them. There was no solution in this draft class either, okay? So you're not going to find one worthy of that number two overall pick. They trade back. Maybe you can say they get Mike McGlinchey, but McGlinchey's a guy who got dominated by Lorenzo Carter who can't, you know, who didn't, who's who who you know, a great talent. We like him. We like his upside, but he's not a complete pass rusher. And right. had a lot of trouble at Notre Dame with those speed rushers, and that's going to be a lot more difficult for him at the NFL level, and he didn't do that great in his debut against a really tough Vikings front. So he got that, and there was no one at pick 34. Connor Williams was overpowered at the guard position for the Cowboys uh, in yesterday's game against the Carolina Panthers. Kiwan Short destroyed him. He wouldn't have been able to play right tackle, I don't think, right away. And then you're digging deeper. If you're thinking a third or fourth round pick from the college game, that's nothing like the NFL game that NFL coaches have consistently complained about how college offensive tackles are not translating to the NFL – you're pulling straws here if you think any of those guys would have been able to start and play better than Eric Flowers. So while I do think that Flowers has some unfixable mistakes, I'm also not sure there were many other better options in the offseason, and I'm not sure that Chad Wheeler is a guy who can come in next week or whenever they want to make that decision, if they make the decision, and play better. Because as we saw last season, Wheeler really struggled at right tackles. We saw this preseason, Wheeler really struggled at right tackle. So he may just be a left tackle, somebody you can't – again, you can't ask. These guys have been playing one position their whole career. It's going to be difficult to make that transition. So while I'm kind of – so I think in the end, Nick, I'm pretty much torn. I'm somewhere in between where you stand and where, you know, the, the Twitter mob stands for the time. <laughs> I don't think he's fixing it, but I also actually somehow still think he might be their best option. And, like, you look at, like, why didn't the Giants sign Cameron Fleming? That was a guy I was surprised didn't, they didn't sign this offseason. And then some people say, you know, why didn't they draft Tyrell Crosby? Another guy I was surprised fell in the draft. There's a reason. When, all, when you know, when 31 other teams, except for the team that signed or drafted them, are waiting until round five to draft Tyrell Crosby or, you know, giving Cameron Fleming a one-year contract, and it's not the, and the Patriots, uh, by the way, let him go after losing Nate Solder, it's not a good sign, you know? Maybe the PFF grades don't add up. Maybe the, the perception isn't what it actually is for those evaluating these offensive linemen. So I'll leave it at that. Um, I, I mean, I'll ask you real quick, actually, before we move on from Flowers, Nick. Do you think that they should bench Flowers right right now for Chad Wheeler in week two? No, no. I mean, the, the, the issue, as you hit on, is that the lack of depth, the lack of competition in camp – you know, is, is not there. Uh, Nick Becton's not the answer. He's not even on the team anymore. Uh, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't think they should. I think what has to happen is you have to, you have to find ways as a coaching staff and an organization to win with and win with means everybody. And you're going to have adequate players. You're going to have marginal players. You know, I think he's somewhere between the, the, the two and his downside when he plays bad games, when he plays into tough competition, yeah, he's he's this way, but teams win with 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 a whole team, and so there's ways to get around it. There's ways to to find a you know to, success is going to happen over over the course of time. What I saw is what's really interesting is the drive that is the second drive of the game. 
basically all throughout the first half, like how do he, how does he have these snaps where these problems kind of magically go away? No one really wants to talk about those wins. Now I'm not belittling the four issues that that's a big four issue number, but you know, it's, 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 it's a number, it's ways to get around those two to four snaps, which are disastrous basically for uh, versus, you know, a, a bunch of snaps that, that where he basically functions. Um, so I think it's, I think it's a, it's a combination of both and, um, you know, a tough test next week, but we'll get there in a, in our, in our, <laughs> later on in the week. Yeah, Nick, and I think you made a good point there because that's kind of how it is. When you're not, when you're playing this offensive line position for, uh, as far as team fan bases go, they really, what really stands out to the fans are the few bad plays they make. Um, but, you know, when you look at it, Flowers had a really, really good block on Saquon Barkley's touchdown run. Did he not? Right. Yeah, right. no, that, that, was good. that was a good duo play. And, yeah, he, he, he flushed uh, whoever the inside five tech was down, breaks down, nicely done. Yeah, that play doesn't happen without him. And overall, he graded out well, at least scored a pro football focus as a run blocker. And it's just that, you know, pe- people are going to focus on those few bad snaps. And like I said earlier in the in the podcast, I do believe that they played a key role in this loss. I really do believe that. But that's just part of the game. And that, like you said, there's – they. I'm not going to go – I should really re- refrain and refine that statement to say they played a role. But there's so many other factors in a football game that you can't totally blame it on that. But that does transition to me into what I want to talk about next, which is – like you said, ways to help out Flower, ways to win with Flowers on the roster. And that might be the usage of 12 personnel and heavy personnel, something we thought we would see from Pat Shermer this season, and I still think we will see, but something he got away from in this game as the Giants fell behind from the scoreboard. If you look at the numbers here, um, and I'm going to pr- pr- pull them up right now, um, I believe that they – let's see what they let, – let me just grab these real quick. I'm sorry. I, I lost these real quick, but they played for at least according to Dan Dugan uh, from the athletic who did a quick run through. And I don't know if you had a chance to, to look these over, but um, they were in 11 personnel for 38 snaps more than, I guess it's more than 50% of their snaps on offense and only in the 12 personnel, which we thought would be their leading snap getter for 14 snaps. Um, they had a couple, four snaps and 21 personnel. They used jumbo with Chad Wheeler on the field uh, for three snaps. So and then a couple of, they did 22 and 13 personnel on a combined four snaps. So really they got away from what we expected them to do. And what you and me talked about on the last podcast, the preview, as something that they can use to their advantage. So why do you think that happened, Nick? And, and moving forward, you know, what can we take away from that? Yeah, I think the um, overall they fall in line. The numbers fall in line with where Shermer was last year in kind of the high 50s to low 60s for 11 because that's just kind of the way the game works out. It's not to belittle what you're saying or, or take the point away because it's there. But it's, it's hidden in the overall numbers because if you pull the individual segments of the game out, you see the first 10 plays, which I'm sure Shermer scripts like many other West Coast background coaches. And he's got he's got five uh, 11 personnel plays there and he's got three thir- no, three twelve and two thirteen uh, personnel. So that's OK. But you see these other stretches during the game where he gets into eight and two or seven and one, where it's and that happens situationally as you get down. Coaches use eleven more, eleven personnel much more so. Or when you use tempo and you want to get going, it's it's obviously easier to keep the same players on the field. I do think though they they did miss something here from a personnel perspective, um, and I actually had a couple of tweets out on this just because. It changes the look, especially if you do it early enough with enough different formations, it changes the look for the defense and keeps them off balance. When the Giants ran 12 personnel, again, I don't really want to really jump into Shermer play calling wise, but almost all their 12 personnel snaps were shotgun with twins to one side or an ace back look with with tight ends on both sides of the field. You didn't really see Saquon Barkley thrown out of the formation as much. You didn't see Evan Ingram in the backfield as much. It's not about doing crazy things for doing crazy things, but it's to keep a very, very good zone defense off balance. Jumping a little little bit into something else here, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Giants' red zone woes. The Giants settled for a lot of field goals, so if you want to look for other scapegoats in addition to Eric Flowers, maybe you can look for the Giants' red zone production. They were 0 for 2 in their red zone attempts uh, for touchdowns. So do you blame that, Nick, more on the play calling? Because I know there are a lot of fans who didn't like that first series of play calls. Um, and then, Or do you blame that kind of on the execution? I, I think it's a combination of both. I think that you see in the first red zone trip, 
you know, they're running one, three personnel and they're running duo to the right. And inside the 10 guys are going to start to, <laughs> the statisticians are going to start flipping out over that in terms of success rate. Um, you know, I liked a couple of the RPOs that they called in the red zone, but outside of that, you know, many people are going to hit the, the, uh, the, like I said, the first one with the reverse to Odell. And yeah, I, I don't really get that play in terms of trying to beat the, it, it brings into a bigger theme where the Giants did try to run a lot of perimeter runs, whether you're talking about outside zone, you're talking about reverses, you're talking about uh, kind of speed pitches to the outside where I just didn't, you know, I don't think that's the way to beat Jacksonville because of their speed. Right. And, and Jacksonville showed there, they're they're not that undisciplined a defense where they basically caught Beckham, you know, in the backfield on that play. So, you know, a mixed at best, but it does come down to execution on some of those. And the Giants did, you know, navigate the new green zone that they love to highlight now pretty well. And so, you know, I don't think it was necessarily all the play calling. Yeah, and I think if you look at it, there's there's definitely teams you might want to try that on, that type of play, that reverse the back. I'm like, obviously you saw the Chiefs ran a play that wasn't similar, but it was somewhat – it was a perimeter run to – or they technically a pass because Mahomes basically like pushed the ball forward, but it was basically a perimeter run to uh, DeAnthony Thomas for a touchdown. And I think, like, when you're when you're using these plays, I actually, actually don't think it's best to use Beckham on it because he's going to be highlighted by the defense. I think you want to use more misdirection where it looks like right. it's designed towards Beckham's direction or Barkley's direction and actually use a third or fourth, you know, option on that play. But, you know, they tried it, and it didn't work, and it's going to have to get better because red zone issues were exactly what haunted this Giants offense for pretty much all four seasons under Pat Sher- – I'm sorry, under Ben McAdoo. Um, but diving past that a little bit, I wanted to dive into Eli Manning because I think there's been pretty mixed reviews on Eli Manning so far from what I've read about his week one performance as far as what the fans see. Pro football focus actually graded him out super high, and they're, they usually have really low grades for Eli Manning. They had him as the number one graded offensive player for the Giants. Um, on Twitter, it's a pretty mixed review from the fans that I've spoken to. I thought Eli Manning played a pretty good game overall. I thought he missed some throws. I thought... Both of the Beckham ball, the, the the Beckham go route he missed in the in the back of the end zone. That play to me was missed because Beckham got t- uh, you know bumped at the top of his route and the timing was off. I think that's just a timing play. But at the same time, you know some quarterbacks will hit that play anyway. Some of the better quarterbacks. And then obviously on the red zone, missed to Beckham on, on you know where he had a ton of space right before halftime, where they eventually had to settle for a field goal. That play, when you really look back at that play, like you know the ball is snapped really poorly by John Halpio there and Eli Manning is lucky to even catch that ball and that doesn't turn into a fumble but then after that he's immediately has to shift all his weight to the left side because there's an immediate rush coming off of Eric Flowers side of the offensive line and so he really has to rush that pass off his back foot uh now again like I said some quarterbacks can still hit that ball off their back foot Eli Manning's not one of them but you take away that those two plays and a few others that he wishes he could have back um and obviously you know People blame him for that tipped interception, and I think that blame belongs all across the, the board, and I would actually give most of that blame to Eric Flowers or, or the Giants blocking overall, let's just say. Um, I just don't know what else Eli could have done there. And in that game, situ- people have to understand something about that tipped interception. At that point of the game, the Giants were the Giants had gotten a lot of stops in a row on defense, and they needed to some, get something going on offense. And Eli didn't want to take a sack there. I don't totally blame him for that. A sack would have definitely killed that drive for sure would have to punt it right back, three and out, put the defense right back on the field. And so he tried to make something happen. It's unfortunate it got tipped up like that into the air. That could go so many different directions. But, you know, he has a few plays he wants to take back. But like you said, even like he broke down in that Ingram pass uh, that Ingram dropped after the pass interference, that's a good ball. He placed that in a really good spot. Um, And then finally, and he even admitted this after the game, the final pass to Sterling Shepard, that's on Eli. He said he's got to read that faster, and he's got to put that ball out in front of Shepard. And he's right because – if he does read that play a little bit, it does you know it does process that play a little faster and get that ball in front of Shepard. That may not only be a catch for a first down, that may be a touchdown. So I thought he had an overall pretty strong, a pretty solid game. Um, I don't think it was anything amazing, but I don't think it was bad as some people are saying. What do you think overall about Eli's performance, Nick? I think the devil was in was in the details for him. I think he had some really good detail plays, and he had some pretty poor detail plays. We did talk about the read that he made early in the game, which was a, which was a blatant misread. I think that you see, 
you know, he was trying to be decisive early, and I, but I think you see some traits that you've seen over the past few years for him where he'll stick on his first route, his first read maybe a little too long. That'll then that'll then derail everything else in the progression. So he's a beat to two beats late as he goes through his reads. And, you know, you see it um, just in some other details where he's rolling out to his right and he's throwing on the run. And a couple reads on in the secondary where, you know, against cover four, he's throwing that deep post that you referred to, the deep throw to Odell Beckham. That was a post wheel route. If he had looked at the wheel route, it probably would have been touchdown. You know, but I, I so I see the, the the side of where if he makes that first read and it has to be perfect, then he's got to be perfect. But there are other ways where he can win in this offense where he doesn't have to be perfect. I think it's just really finding that balance going forward. Yeah, and that's fair. That's a fair criticism. You know, I'm not trying to totally put him past all, any of these criticisms. Like I said, to me, just a solid game, nothing. But I just don't see. To me, I don't see where all the blame's coming from personally. Right. <laughs> stage of Eli's career we know what he is and still people want him to be something that he's not um and I think this you know things are going to change when they don't have to play a Jaguars defense with that much talent across the board they didn't have any there were no injuries coming into this game for this Jaguars defense it's the same unit that finished 2017 as the NFL's best second most sacks uh best pass defense by far and they added some talent too there in the offseason so I'm not going to judge Eli. Uh, I'm not considering, you know, the factors in play. I thought he played a pretty solid game before we move a little bit towards the defensive side of the ball. Um, I do want to talk about some other things we liked on the offensive side of the ball. Cause we haven't even touched on the two biggest names yet. And we'll do that. Now we'll start with Odell Beckham jr. We finished the game with 11 receptions for 111 yards. His longest reception was only 24 yards. Obviously that could have been a lot bigger. You talk about the deep post Eli missed. Eli missed another deep one to him. And he also, he also missed the red zone play. That could have been a touchdown. There were two plays where, where the defense interfered with Odell Beckham Jr., where those could have been touchdowns if they didn't hold him back. Uh, and so, to me, he just looked freaking awesome out there. You know, he had Jalen Ramsey essentially shadow covering him for, uh, I believe, uh, my, my boy Weiss, uh, Giants Daily on Twitter, said for 54 of 71 plays, Ramsey was covering Odell Beckham Jr. Obviously, half of those were zone coverages, and, you know, he was responsible in zone. But it's still, the point is, against Jalen Ramsey to have 11 catches for 111 yards with four plays, uh, you know, that didn't connect based on penalties or by the defense or, you know, misconnections by Eli and overthrows. You could say that he had a pretty much dominant game, right? Is there anything I'm missing here? No, I don't think so. They wanted there. He was the first catch of the game. He was right in the game script very, very early. And yeah, I think that is a guy that you want to utilize a lot. I think that, yeah, I think there's going to. I think there's going to be more ways that we'll see as they as they bring out a few more of the wrinkles. And um, I liked him more on a lot of crossing routes for him, deeper crossing routes, deep, not just the deep over that we talked about. But I think that's where he can be really deadly. And he was running more of the deep go portions of what we're talking about in terms of these route concepts. So I think that you know there are almost maybe even better ways that he can be featured and, and do and be more effective, especially in the red zone too, where the windows are going to be smaller and tighter. And he was schemed open a few times, but you ultimately want this guy to be able to catch fades, to catch deep posts, to catch, to catch deep drags in the, in the red zone. So there's pl- plenty of improvement, but a lot of, a lot of good things so far. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. And if this is, you know, if this is just the start. I think Oda Beckham and you said this, Nick yourself, you did old piece on this actually for cover one, right? But it was either inside the pile or cover one. This was one of the early ones from the yeah, off pile. On, yeah. <laughs> ITP. And it was basically like, you think he could be even better in Pat Shermer's offense than he ever was in Ben McAdoo's. And I agree. I mean, look at this 11 for one eleven against Jalen Ramsey and the best defensive front. The giants will probably see all season besides maybe the Philadelphia Eagles. And he's doing that. Uh, I think, you know, I think Beckham is in store for maybe his best season yet. I said I, I really do believe that after watching him yesterday. He looked so good to me out there, just explosive, getting open, tons of separation. And like you said, the routes could improve. You know, he could be used. I liked how they used him on that third and two PA bootleg. It was like a rollout with Eli early in the game. I thought it was a great play call by Shermer. Yeah. Obviously, earlier in the game, I don't know exactly what this route was, but uh, it was a route where they created kind of like a deep rub route, and Eli kind of underthrew Beckham on the yeah. game open. What did you say? Yeah, no, yep, that was a uh, they, there was a nice pick, and basically Eli had Eli was a little pressured, not too much. There was some there was yeah, some, uh, some stuff around his, yeah, his feet, and basically underthrows it. But right, no, the the natural rub and pick stuff, the wheel type stuff. There's going to be a lot of that going forward. Yeah, um, so I was very happy to see him, and then we're going to obviously dive into Saquon Barkley. Uh, so I did read a, cu- a couple interesting stats about Barkley. I would say 
Um, for starters, according to Pro Football Focus, he averaged the most yards per carry after contact of any back, over five and a half yards after contact per carry. That's pretty unbelievable. At the same time, he was also contacted at, and this is actually according not to Pro Football Focus, to NFL stats, excuse me, in research, he was contacted at or behind the line of scrimmage on 50% of his, his, his snap or 50% of his touches in the first half. Um, and then it, it kind of died down a little bit from there, but at the same time, not much. And that Jaguars defensive front was in the backfield on every, on what seemed like every single play. So for me with Barkley after the game, um, Pat Shermer basically said, we wanted to get Barkley the ball more, but it was not very easy for us based on what the Jaguars defense was doing. Is that something you saw a little bit of like what, what Shermer's referring to there? Not, not exactly. I think Barkley was, was as advertised in terms of all of his traits and his ability to do all the things that we thought he could do from, you know, from both running between the tackles and then bouncing outside for big runs. But specifically for that, no, I did not see, um, I didn't really see anything they were doing differently. I think that, you know, if you're going to run 12 personnel against their heavy base or their heavier base you know, uh, uh, three, sorry, four, three, you know, you're going to, it's going to be harder for him to, 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 to find himself in space. If you have him out in the slot and he's catching a few more balls, maybe, you know, the screen game opens up a little bit more. I think as that, as that side opens up more, you're going to see more room available for him on the run side, running side of the house. Interesting. And that's something we'll keep an eye on. I mean, I personally wanted to see a few more plays like we saw, uh, in the second half on that third and five, where it was kind of a do- design screen right away for Barkley, where they got the blockers out ahead. I thought that was one of the best plays they ran all day. And I wanted to see a little bit more, maybe a wheel route that was designed to go Barkley's direction. Some of the stuff we saw during the preseason, not during the preseason, but during training camp, the Giants really used that route a lot. And in spring OTAs, they really were hitting Barkley on a lot of those deep wheel routes. To me, I wanted to see a little bit more design passing, uh, design you know passing plays for Barkley, but hopefully we'll see that moving forward. The other side of this, too, just to jump in, is um, specifically with the wheel route. There's a great example from the Pittsburgh game in the playoffs where they're playing Jacksonville, and Telvin Smith is amazing at covering those routes. And uh, Big Ben had to thread the needle for a, uh, a Le'Veon Bell touchdown on a wheel route. But I use it as an example. I'm like, it's very hard to beat this guy laterally yeah. with speed and coverage. He's really as good as it got, so as good as it gets. So maybe that's what Shermer is referring to, to be honest, um, yeah. in terms of the straight of a lot of man coverage from Smith on, on, on the running back, whoever that is. For sure. And I think that could definitely be what he's saying. I mean, this is a really, really talented Jaguars defense. They're, they're, they're so fast, and they have a lot of awesome players at every level of the defense. So that's just something to keep an eye on. So before we dive at, we, we go into uh, the defensive side of the ball, uh, and I think there's a little bit less to talk about uh, as far as the offense goes remaining, but I do want to touch on a couple things I didn't like. I didn't like the play of Patrick Omeme. I need to go back like like you like you do and watch watch him some more snaps. But you know he graded out really poorly on Pro Football Focus and he didn't pass my eye test. What did you see from uh, from from the first year uh, right guard? Uh, first year giant, you mean? But yes, <laughs> I've been bouncing around the NFL before this. Right. Um, no. So uh, you know, I think as advertised, as we kind of talked about, he's in the middle of the range in terms of a solid pass blocker. You saw the balance. The balance issues came come up on a few t- few plays where you know the defensive linemen are ripping him down and away, and he's almost falling over. Um, again, we're not trying to hide or mask his issues. He has them, but overall, I would kind of put it what where I would throw him in the adequate to solid range. Okay, that's interesting. And, what, and did you did you have anything? I actually thought probably if I had to just grade these guys one through five on the offensive line, I would have said I thought Solder probably had the best game, even though he obviously had some bad snaps. But overall, I thought he had the best game. Then Jalapeo, and then I would go Hernandez, and then Omame, then Flowers, or then Flowers. Then I would actually thought Omame played worse overall, even though he didn't have as many like standout bad snaps. How would you give, give me a quick rundown of how you would grade those offensive linemen if it was a one through five scale, best to worst? I'll do it one through seven just because that's the scale I use more. <laughs> but that's okay. No, so, no, no, no. I know what you're saying. I'm not saying giving them a one through seven grade. I'm saying the best to the worst. Best to the worst. Um, honestly, they're all they're all very close in line. Okay. Um, Solder got smoked at the end of the first half multiple times. Campbell single-handedly, I'm talking about Calais Campbell, single-handedly beat them all. 
on multiple times. So their best player, wherever he moved along the front formation, that's where all the heads were looking when anyone was free and looking for work. And when, when that happens, they're trying to basically go to the place of biggest alarm. It was always where Campbell was, even if that was to Solder's side. Uh, also, um, you know, he he really smoked um, Hernandez pretty pretty good too. So I'm. I, Honestly, I didn't I didn't do individual breakdowns for everybody, but I would throw them kind of all in the kind of like anywhere from two to four range, two to three range. Um, and I think it's really pretty even. I think overall the the offensive blame again, if you will, is is a third to the entire offensive line because of at times all of these guys look bad at, at right. any kind of key points. That's a good point. And you know what? It makes it to an overarching and overall point with this. The offensive line play has to improve. They have to find ways to improve it because if you dive into the numbers, and these are not independent from the usual norm with Eli Manning. The numbers I'm about to tell you are pretty consistent across his entire career. From yesterday, when there was no pressure, Eli Manning went 18-24, 75% completion percentage for 187 yards. No interceptions, no touchdowns. Under pressure, he was only under pressure for 15 of his dropbacks. Um and he only completed 5 of 13, 38.5%, 37 yards, and an interception. And he was only blitzed five times, but on those five times, he went one for five with 16 yards. So, you know, you look at Eli Manning, this has been the case his entire career. He's really been a quarterback who's much better when he's not under pressure. Um, and now most quarterbacks are. That sounds like a stupid comment, but, you know, the, to me, the, 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 the difference between him and other quarterbacks in this regard is much greater. So you look at that and you look at and how they could find ways. And I think what we talked about before is definitely going to be in play where they're going to have to get, you know, they can't get this far behind the sticks on every series. And hopefully that won't happen as much against the Jaguars. Um, but moving forward a little bit before we dive into the defense, I did want to get your thoughts on Evan Ingram, who is also another guy who's taken a lot of, you know, a lot of flack right now on Twitter from Giants fans. Did you think he was as bad as other people thought? I think, you know, yeah, I got a question on Twitter too, you know, the two to three drops that he had, you know, is this an issue now? I mean, it's an issue, but is it, how is it, is it, how worrisome is it going forward? And, and yeah, you know, is it concentration or is it just the fact that he has bad hands or not as good hands as other players? Um, You know, what's really funny is, is as I dove into the scouting world, the more you dive into this on the receiving side of the house um, for receivers. It's just, it's like the back, it's like backyard. It's like evaluating someone in the backyard. Either they have hands or they don't. And that's often a big dividing line. And I just don't, I think his hands are somewhere in the adequate to solid range. And, you know, he has either, it's, whether it's mental or physical, you know, he drops some easy balls. So I, I definitely think it is an, it is an issue. And it's an issue if you need to feature the guy, you know, in an offense where you're targeting him 15 times, which the Giants are not going to do. Um, so an issue, but something that has been there and, and that he's working at. Um, but in terms of overall great for this game, um, you know, bad, so a couple bad drops. He had a, he had a great hold on his block, uh, not hold, but a good block on his on the big, big Barkley run. Yeah, he was dealing with Clay's Campbell there, so saw a good flash there. He did have some negative flashes on the run blocks as well, so kind of somewhere in the middle of the range where he was before, but the ability to – he has the ability to play consistently – but it gets back to your Red Ellison point about flat using him maybe more and giving Ingram um, and putting Ingram in other places. Uh, so overall, you know, I did like it, but but there are some there are some red flags here. Yeah, and you know what though, one thing I will add about Ingram that I liked is at least on a few of the snaps that I saw was his blocking. Um, obviously, he got a lot of credit after the game from Saquon Barkley, who name dropped him like two or three times when he was talking about you know why he was able to make that touchdown run um and I'll get your point I'll get your take on that in a second to see if Barkley was on point or if he was just kind of you know giving his teammate a little too much credit and then he also there's a snap I saw recently someone actually featured it on Twitter um where he on one of his receptions where he kind of came across the field for a play that on third down that was close to being a first down where he reached out and just came up short uh also not a great pass by Eli there. He actually did an awesome job depleting the edge rusher uh, on the line of scrimmage before releasing out. So I thought that was pretty cool to watch. So I think he's improving, Ingram, and I think there will be some big games coming for him. Um, anyway, though, Nick, if you wanted to dive into a little bit about the defense, I thought you know not enough was being made about this defensive performance. So a lot of people have said it, have looked at it like this. Jaguars, they lose Leonard Fournette to a hamstring injury. They have Blake Bortles. They have Keelan Cole. They have D.D. Westbrook. They have these skill position players who may not be name brand. So the Giants' defense dominated. They pitched a shot in the second half, but they're thinking, who cares, right? To me, I don't see it that way for number one for the number one reason that I think the Jaguars' offensive line is pretty damn good. 
And because of that, I think I think that, you know, when you're a defense that does well against a good offensive line, to me it shows me more than when you're a defense that does well against a group of skilled position players with no offensive line. I've always been a big believer in the trenches being the most important uh, the factor as far as the offense, offense performance goes and offensive production. So I thought they had an outstanding game against an offensive line that really looked improved during the 2017 season for the Jaguars and then added all pro left guard Andrew Norwell this season. That was in every, every other starter returned to that lineup. So what did you think from the defense overall? What was your overall takeaways from the Giants defense after pitching a shutout in the second half? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I highlighted some plays for CoverOne.net in a piece out today and um, really good stuff from the secondary. Um, you know, Eli Apple they showed the ability to cover uh, in to, to, to shadow guys in coverage early to mid part of the routes, just like we talked about on here. And he did it against difficult formations, against bunch formations, against uh, speedy wide receivers, guys that can get downfield, guys that can eat up grass and guys that can make, you know, most most cornerbacks, although they're not named brands, it's still the NFL and these guys these guys have speed and so he showed a real good ability there showed real good ability in his ball skills um, and, and broke up some good plays and so that's what Betcher needs uh, is corners that can lock down not just the best wide receivers, but any wide receiver on the outside, because it allows him to do other things on the on the interior, whether it be pattern match coverages, whether it be straight zone, whether it be man, and it all starts in that cornerback position. It's a little bit like how the Saints defense last year really became a lot better with the improved cornerback play, and that kind of all of a sudden the Saints became like a household name on the defensive side of the house, which just doesn't really happen that often in New Orleans. Right. Um, but to get back to it, I, I, I like I liked the secondary play. Jenkins obviously had a great interception. Um, really good ball skills there. Great technique. I broke that down on Twitter. Um, you bring up the point about the, about the defensive line to shift to the to the front seven, and that was really interesting because they had some really good pass rushes against the Jaguars' best you know, uh, best players against Norwell. Norwell was beaten a few times by Kareem Martin, um, by uh, well, actually I guess on the Michael Thomas blitz pressure it wasn't him but it was that side of the line it was norwell's side that broke down it was the tight end blocking him there specifically uh but saw saw some really good stuff and to your point it's you know the second half they really pitched a shutout against a unit that you know is is still a little underrated um and so i i really like the performance overall um i don't really you know if you want to look at the other way i can't really think of anyone who's played negatively <laughs> you know it's there's really not a there's not like any types of uh type of scapegoat there at all for any of any of the bad plays that they made um and so it was good stuff well that's kind of a little bit of one what i want to dive into there because there were actually a few players who graded out negatively pro football focus wise and i want to see if you saw it the way they did or if you saw it differently but first i did want to touch a little bit on eli apple who really has taken a lot of flack from giants fans since last season and he was targeted on four time, uh, four attempts, four pass attempts, and gave it one reception for six yards. And they were hitting him. They were trying to get him with those back shoulder throws that you know he was a little bit susceptible to during the preseason. And he wasn't having any of it. Eli Apple had an outstanding game. And Janoris Jenkins, in addition to having the interception, added two pass breakups and a team high seven tackles. And that just shows me, you know, he's all in this season. Um, you know, completely in there. But a couple other interesting points about the defense, at least from a snap count standpoint, before I get into your thoughts on some of the guys who graded out a little poor, more poorly than others were, for starters, Kareem Martin played a crazy amount of snaps. Martin played 61 snaps. That was more than every single Giants defensive player except for obviously the secondary because the starting four there tend to play, you know, every season the starting four in the secondary play the most snaps on the defense uh, except for, you know, during the Steve Spagnuolo years where they played Olivier Vernon and Jason Pierre-Paul so, on 95 right. snaps. But, Martin played 61 snaps, which I thought was super interesting, including six snaps on special teams. Um, and then after that, they really did stay true to their rotation. Dalvin Thompson, Damon Harrison, 46 and 45 snaps respectively. Connor Barwin was next on the list with 41. Uh, B.J. Goodson really didn't play as much as we thought he would. B.J. Goodson only played 33 snaps, and Ray Ray Armstrong right behind him with 30. And then Lorenzo Carter and B.J. Hill, the two rookies who we thought would play massive, massive roles on this defense, only played 24 snaps for Carter and then 23 for Hill with Carrie Wynn getting in there with 20 um, with Mario Edwards getting a handful of snaps with six John Jenkins another guy that just signed got eight snaps so what did you take away from kind of the rotation there on the defense Martin's usage Goodson's usage and BJ Hill's and, and Armstrong's usage and BJ Hill's usage I know I just asked a lot there so you can <laughs> one by one or just overall takeaway on that 
Uh, definitely first with Martin. His high number of snaps, they moved him into the three-tech inside a lot. And that opens up, obviously, then someone can slide into the end position where he played. And, and he showed yeah. the ability to, to to flash moves down there, which I hadn't really noticed before. So you're seeing definitive improvement from him. Um, and he's almost – I broke down Kerry Wynn a few weeks ago. It's almost like he's Kerry Wynn on steroids. That doesn't take any away from Wynn. But it's just that's just the type of player he is down there in that three-tech position. So really like that. Um, moving to the linebacker side, you're right. A lot of Armstrong. Um, and you got to remember too, if you're, if you're, if the, if your if your nickel defense is almost your base defense now, because it's, it's featured so much, um, that's where they were kind of splitting time directly with Goodson and, and Armstrong. And I really didn't have a problem with it in the sense that Armstrong played a really good game. He, he saw all of his positive traits flash. So I was, I was okay with that. Um, even if it means that it takes away from Goodson's time. Ogletree had a very good game. You saw the best of Ogletree to, to, to this game. Great sideline to sideline speed, good penetration downfield, not a great use of hands, but good use of hands and ability to close and make plays for your team. You know, it wasn't this coverage issue, the, the coverage issues that we saw before. I thought they would target him a little bit more at the running backs when they could. They were not effective there in doing that. Um, or for most plays for doing that. So so good there. And in terms of the overall snap usage for the rookies. I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't really know. Um, I just think that when you, maybe for the first game initially, maybe bringing these guys in a little bit more slowly than 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 you would expect. But I don't know. I actually I didn't really have a massive amount of expectations there because both both had good plays too when they were in. You know, Hill had a good stop, and uh, and Carter Carter had a pass breakup, right? A real athletic pass breakup um, on a on a jump ball, deflect the ball. So so good stuff when they were there. But I think it's one of those things that in this rotation, I bet I bet it'll vary week to week, uh, kind of according to what they're seeing on the offensive side. Yeah, no doubt. And you mentioned it, both Hill and Carter were effective when they were in the game. They also both earned strong grades from Pro Bowl Focus, who actually gave pretty weak grades for uh, B.W. Webb, B.J. Goodson, Kareem Martin, your boy, and Ray Ray Armstrong. So, you know, we can't go all by the grades, um, and we got to, you know, we got to take a look into that a little bit more in depth. But um, they but hold on a second. They really actually graded Kareem Martin negatively. Yeah, Kareem Martin had one of the the second worst grade uh, behind it, Ray Ray Armstrong. You know why? Because, uh, because of the zone replay. Yeah, I guess they, I think that's what it is because that's that's really an outlier there when I'm looking at the breakdown of his grades. He really has strong grades, grades across the board as far as tackling goes, pass rush. Um, he's okay there. And then in coverage on the few snaps he was used there, actually it was one snap in coverage. So that's interesting that they could even have a grade for that. But – but uh, you're right. In run defense, it was way low, and I guess that's a lot because of the zone replay. So, and just to jump into, I'm sure guys saw this who who, who watched the game. Um, but uh, I guess the announcers were going crazy how the how the entire defense was fooled by zone read, and that's an interesting interpretation. Um, all the players are are watching their run keys in front of them and reacting accordingly. And the, 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 the keeper part of that zone read where the quarterback runs with the ball, it's the advantage that the offense has. So what you need is you need the force defender or the contained defender to really kind of go out over the top and make a great play. On that play, the contain was actually the backside corner. And Kareem Martin did as he was doing and the ends were doing for most of the game. He was crashing down on the running back. So he was basically doing his job. Now, could he have been more aware? <clears throat> sure. But the reason why that run was not an eight-yard run and a 50-yard run was because of the angle and the slip that Landon Collins had as the main force defender on that side as the deep safety. And so that's where that number explodes. And to be fair, not to jump into these guys' stuff, but this is why the grades – aren't always the way they are because you have to see how the how the defense what the defense assignments are or guess what they are most of the cases and then grade out accordingly but it's very hard to do that when you don't realize that the force defender falls on that play when he does it's a wide open field for the quarterback to run yeah i mean that's a good breakdown right there and that guys goes to show you couldn't guys can't always you know we can't always go just based on the grade we can use them as a reflection point something we can also factor in but you know that that's a good reason why you can't you know buy completely into it and go all in with that with that. Um, I thought in addition to that, just a few more comments on the defense. I thought, like I said before, Batcher did a really good job adjusting, uh, finding a way to get pressure in that second half and not getting fooled by a lot of the things that the Jaguars were doing on an offense in the first half. It seemed like they came out with a game plan, a really good one. Uh, and Daniel Hackett, uh, that the offense coordinator there, and 
And it worked in the first half until the Giants really adjusted down and, and fixed that. Did you have any other thoughts you wanted to add on the defensive side of the ball? No, I think I think we got it. I think it's one of those things where, you know, Dallas is the next challenge and we're going to jump into that. But I think they're they're sitting in a good spot. I think the biggest worry being the secondary, uh, you know, is is now something that's a lot more shored up than it was 10 days ago. And, you know, again, that's going to change. They're going to blow plays. They're going to miss assignments. All that stuff's going to happen. But overall, for what Betcher wants to do 60 to 70 percent of the time, I think they have the personnel to do it. I do, too. And just before we wrap this up um, and get to a little bit of the uh, the clean, you know, like the what well, the preview of what we're going to be getting to next, I wanted to touch on a few of the injuries. Fortunately for the Giants, um, there was only one injury to worry about from this game. They obviously entered the game with some worrisome injuries. Olivier Vernon, for example, uh, couldn't play due to his high ankle sprain. We don't know when he's going to be back. Um, that's a big one for the Giants because I do think that th- that his presence was missed. I know we. We, I mean, it was more missed more so, I think, in the first half than the second half, but once the Giants kind of adjusted to what the Jaguars were doing. But I do think, you know, his presence, even the little things like allowing Creed Martin to play more at the three-tech on those passing downs uh, with the guys like Vernon and um, with Vernon and Carter and Barwin on the outside, the linebacker spots. And then you also – but the, the main injury from the game was Wayne Gallman, who went down early in this game with a knee injury. Um, Pat Shermer today on Monday, head coach said – they, they're not going to give any information out, basically, on Gallman. Uh, it seems like he's more week-to-week than day-to-day. Um, so we'll see what happens there. But otherwise, the Giants escaped this one pretty clean. Um, and this week, later on this week, once we get a chance to dive into the All-22 tape, which is going to come out Wednesday, we're going to do a little bit of more recap on just some things we saw and some things they might be able to translate. And then a big preview on what we expect in this Dallas Cowboys game. Like I said, it's going to be a really, really big game for the Giants. They have to get out to 1-1. One one. They can't go 0-2 this season. I don't think, especially with how difficult their early season schedule is um, and how hard it might be to dig themselves out of that hole. As of now, based on what I saw, I test first week, and then Giants are going to win this game. I don't like the Dallas Cowboys team this year. I thought that they should have lost that game by a lot more than eight points. Um, I had a chance to watch through that most of that whole game. Um, and they, you know, the Panthers had like three or four red zone trips. So they turned into like zero, <laughs> zero or three points. Uh, so... I think that the Giants have an advantage there, but we're going to see what happens because there's going to have to, you know, there was a nice, there was a positive feel in the locker room after the game, even for a loss, which is weird to say. But I think based after last season, the players kind of saw like, look, we were, you know, inches away from making some pretty, pretty damn big plays in this game that would have changed the outcome of this game big time. And the Giants had, even without those plays, the Giants outgained the Jaguars and won the time possession battle. So to me, I'm looking forward to diving into that. Nick, did you have anything else you wanted to add? No, no, just more content coming. Um, for me, I'll have a, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll jump into a little bit of a preview uh, on the writing side of the house, and we'll do more breakdowns as well in game, out of game on the, on my YouTube channel. Uh, it's all there, Teammanic21 at Twitter uh, handle there. Awesome, awesome guys. And again, if you guys did enjoy the show, uh, do us a favor, hit up, find us on iTunes, subscribe, download all that good stuff. But on that note, we're going to sign it off, and we will talk to you in a few days from today. Uh, when we have a chance to break down that All-22 and preview the Cowboys game. But on that note, I'd like to end these ones. Go Giants. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.